What is going on, Player Profiler Posse? After some technical difficulties with our guest last night, we are back trading our beer for coffee with you this morning to bring you the first look at the upcoming Week 6 DFS main slate. As always, I am Hilo, and this is First Mover. So we've heard the rumblings over these first five weeks of the NFL season about how ugly the slates were that we were tackling. Even so, we typically had one or two games, two games last week, with a game total north of 50 points. We do not have that this week. So if ever we were going to use the term ugly to define a slate, this would be it. Why is that? Let's take a look. Let's make this a little bigger for you. Let's take a look. On the slate, we have a game in London. We have bye weeks. So we have just an 11-game slate. And on that 11-game slate, there is no game with a game total north of 50 points. The closest we get this week is the Carolina Panthers and the Miami Dolphins with a game total of 48.5. And, and that comes with the spread. Biggest I have seen in quite some time of 13 and a half points. Two touchdown favorites, the old Mike McDaniel Dolphins here. All the way down to the Arizona Cardinals and the Los Angeles Rams with a game total of 48 and a half for us as well. Another large spread of six and a half. With that game in particular, one, it's in the afternoon portion of the slate, which is good. For us trying to build some leverage, but the Rams and the Cardinals, the Cardinals defense under Jonathan Gannon has been pretty Jekyll and Hyde. And why is that? First of all, they do not have the talent on their defensive side of the ball to compete with a lot of these elite talent teams. That said, they have overcome a lot of those shortcomings through their defensive scheme. And I keep talking about what that defensive scheme is. It's the easiest way to describe what Jonathan Gannon is doing in Arizona is to call it a shallow to high base. That basically means that their defense is a too high shell, two safeties on the field. They can run all kinds of different coverages from that. They can run cover two. They can run cover four. They can run cover three. Uh, they can run nickel, they can run press, they can run heavy rates of zone. But the big difference of his defense is that he is running a shallow, he is holding his safeties shallow. So instead of pre-snap showing the opposing quarterback his safeties 18 to 20 yards beyond the line of scrimmage, which is typically where the safeties are hanging out in a standard too high shell, his safeties are typically showing the quarterback 12 to 14 yards in depth. And that introduces a lot of uncertainty into the quarterback's mind, into what those safeties are going to do and what the defensive look is that they're going to get. So the reason that the league is kind of shifting to too high base is it shows the quarterback a very similar picture pre-snap. Now, 
when you add the extra layer of those safeties being shallow, it is now something new that NFL quarterbacks are not really used to seeing. So he's trying to overcome the relative shortcomings of his talent on his defense by showing these unique looks on defense. It's still a too high base. It still can have these safeties that drop back into coverage, into deeper looks. But pre-snap, they are closer to the line of scrimmage than teams are used to seeing. And that kind of explains a lot of why this team is more Jekyll and Hyde this season as far as defensive performances go. As such, I think we're going to continue to see some peaks and some valleys from Jonathan Gannon's defense. But when they play these teams that have a robust offensive scheme, I think we could see them struggle. Last week, one of the things that we brought up was the fact that the Zach Taylor's Bengals were not doing a lot of things to take advantage of too high and exploit those tendencies. So one of the more interesting leverage angles that I utilized last week, uh, and if you've seen my Twitter, go check it out. I pinned the tweet. I maxed the Millie Maker for the first time in my DFS career this past week, and I managed to cash zero of my 150 teams. Big part of that was that I full faded the Cincinnati Bengals because of the Jekyll and Hyde nature of this Arizona Cardinals defense. So one of my major leverage points from last week was to go fairly heavy on the Arizona Cardinals defense to full fade the Cincinnati Bengals uh, skill position players uh, and to utilize James Conner as another leverage point in that discussion. Why did I do that? I did that, and it all comes down to this discussion that we're having right now with the Arizona Cardinals. I did that because the field was expressing extreme certainty that the Bengals could not fail in that spot. We saw extreme ownership levels on Jamar Chase. We saw extreme ownership levels on Tyler Boyd for some reason. We saw extreme ownership levels on Joe Mixon. So the fact that the field was so certain that the Bengals could not fail was an easy way for me to generate some leverage um, because this game last weekend had such a wide range of outcomes because Jonathan Gannon's defense can look really good if a team is kind of caught off guard by the shallow too high set or they could get extremely exploited. And we kind of saw that with Jamar Chase they were actually doing things to exploit too high looks. And this is Zach Taylor's offense. Um, after they did it in week three, they did not do it in week four. And then they did some stuff in week five. Again, they were sending Jamar Chase in motion. They were utilizing him to kind of influence opposing safeties. Because if you look at what offenses are doing to exploit too high looks, it, there's really three things that offenses can do to get a better picture than this static too high look pre-snap. You have pre-snap motion, which again, you're looking to the linebackers and you're looking to the safeties to see how they react to that pre-snap motion. You also have the utilization of like Z-type wide receivers that are working downfield. The example that I keep coming back to uh, is Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Um, other examples have included Darius Slayton in New York, 
these guys that are speedy, that can work downfield, that can influence one of those safeties. And you're looking to hold a safety to a side or bring a safety across the field. Uh, something that through these routes of the Z type wide receivers running typically the seven to nine area of the route tree um, to influence safeties in, against too high. The third thing that teams are really doing against uh, or to exploit too high is via the quarterback. And that is typically through the number of steps they take in their drop, their body positioning, so their hips and their feet, which too high allows those safeties to keep their eyes in the backfield on the quarterback. So the, it's up to the quarterback to utilize his shoulders, his hips, his eyes, and his head in conjunction with the amount of steps he's taken back in his drop uh, to influence some of those safeties. So you'll see uh, a quarterback who's really good at this and he doesn't get enough credit for it is Kirk Cousins. Look at Kirk Cousins tape and he is able and he usually, usually does it with exaggerated torso movements. And he is usually doing that by four, five, six step drops. And his entire torso, he is utilizing not just his head and his eyes, but he is utilizing an exaggerated movement in his entire torso to influence one of those safeties. He either, he's right-handed, so he either opens up to influence the left side of the field, or he closes down to influence the safety on the right side of the field. And that's important because these are tendencies that are being utilized by offenses to exploit too high. So why is all that important? Back to the Bengals from last weekend, Joe Burrow was playing almost exclusively from the shotgun, which he doesn't have the dropbacks anymore. Because of his calf injury, the Bengals were not able to attack downfield because of that calf injury. And now he had a Jonathan Gannon defense who plays shallow too high that was going to have 10 or 11 bodies within the first 12 yards of the line of scrimmage. Jamar Chase was also not able to run deep routes because Joe Burrow, his injury, and we saw a regression in Zach Taylor's offense in week four where they were not utilizing Jamar Chase in the slot and they were not motioning him. So all of that came together for me to that be a primary leverage point in week five. But that's interesting now, moving forward to week six, because the Cardinals, Jonathan Gannon's Cardinals, are taking on a Los Angeles Rams offense that is run by Sean McVay. And Sean McVay is one of the, I would say, six, maybe five or six offensive coordinators who are actively seeking to exploit too high tendencies. You have the entire Gary Kubiak tree. Uh, so Kyle Shanahan, uh, Sean McVay, Mike McDaniel. You've got Bobby Slowick, who's doing some awesome things in Houston. Uh, and then there's maybe two or three other offensive coordinators that are actively doing things to exploit too high. One of them is Shane Steichen, and his offense is not yet what I think he wants it to be. There's been a lot of reasons why. I think one of them is he was trying to simplify things for his rookie quarterback uh, over the first month of his season. There's obviously the health concerns with that rookie quarterback. I mean, Anthony Richardson missed one game with a concussion. He started four other games and finished only one of them. So he was, he left in the middle of the game in three out of his four starts. So obviously that is going to affect 
a game plan transitioning to how a game is managed from Shane Steichen. But they have the pieces to do all that. They have Anthony Pierce, or sorry, Alec Pierce, who runs those deep Z type uh, safety manipulator routes. They have a mobile quarterback. They have the ability and they are utilizing pace and pre-snap motion. So although the returns are not yet there for Shane Steichen in Indianapolis, he is showing us a lot of things that say I am actively looking to exploit too high. And at some point, they're going to start attacking downfield. They're going to, they're already playing with pace. They're already used, utilizing pre-snap motion heavily. And now it's kind of over to their quarterback to start doing things to exploit too high as well. We talked about kind of how quarterbacks are doing that in today's NFL game. So all of those things, why are they important? So they're important because too high is very good at disrupting opposing drives. There's other ways to disrupt drives. One of them is to get after the quarterback and disrupt them manually via sacks, via turnovers, uh, via negative plays that places an imposing offense in long down and distance to go situations. So right off the bat, you're looking at Wink Martindale, the madman uh, in New York, has not been effective to this point of the season, uh, but that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to disrupt drives. You have um, you have Jim Schwartz in Cleveland, who is utilizing heavy rates of man coverage, um, and he is utilizing heavy rates of blitz, uh, heavy rates of blitzing. Um, and these are just ways that teams are looking to exploit uh, or, or disrupt opposing drives. And then you kind of have the the San Francisco way, which Robert Sala is utilizing in New York. Um, and then obviously the 49ers are utilizing as well. And that is heavy rates of zone that, and you're not blitzing a ton because your front four are capable and able to generate organic pressure without blitzing. So if you, those guys up front are able to win and get to the quarterback, disrupt an opposing offense in the backfield, and you can sit behind that in heavy rates of zone and provide these unique looks to confuse a quarterback use like Tampa two principles where you have dropping linebackers utilize these safeties that are playing off that can keep their eyes in the backfield. They can cheat up against the run. They can drop back against the pass. That is another way to disrupt drive. So all of that kind of comes into this chess match currently going on in the NFL. And that is why Scoring is down across the league. We've talked about this before, but go back to the 2020 COVID season where we had a shortened off season. We had, we didn't know if the season was going to be played. We had new rules that were introduced to help offenses. Um, all this kind of stuff came together where teams were averaging 2.8 touchdowns per game. That number was all the way down to 2.43 last year. And over the first five weeks of the season is in the 2.3s this year. And that is kind of this normal progression, this sinusoidal uh, progression of this chess match of defenses versus offenses. Now, take that in the context of the week six slate. That is the reason why... Well, that's part of the reason that's that's like some of the causal factors of what is going on 
between this chess match between defensive coordinators and offensive play callers. That is part of the reason why we don't have a lot of high game totals on slates this season. We have zero games with a game total of 50 points or more. We have just two in our magic range of around 47 points. So 47 to 49 and a half is typically the range of Vegas game lines where, or game totals, where there it's the, the range of uncertainty, we'll call it. It's Vegas saying that this game could erupt or this game could play to a relative snooze fest. That range is important as well to us as we're putting together rosters. So we don't have any games with a game total of 50 points or more. And we have just two in this magic range of uncertainty between 47 and 49 and a half points. All of that is important in the context of this slate because obviously we're looking for upside when we're building DFS rosters. So that was a lot of discussion about defensive tendencies, what we're seeing in the league right now, and how teams are looking to start exploiting those. The Chiefs in that discussion are doing some weird things (laughs) that are looking to try to exploit too high as well. They utilize that downfield threat In the past, it was kind of solely Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Now you've got Justin Watson, you've got Justin Ross, uh, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who are all kind of sharing that role, uh, which sucks (laughs) because we have more uncertainty with that offense than we've had in the past. But they also instituted this kind of like short range, short area of the field gadget type schemed usage role. Last year, they instituted that with Nicole Hardman. He got hurt, and then they transitioned Jarek McKinnon to that kind of role. This year, we've seen Kadarius Toney almost operating exclusively in that role, and that's kind of kept him around the 30 to 35% snap rate range, which is not enough to derive upside from. Like, Nicole Hardman was running more of the route tree plus this schemed usage role. Jerk McKinnon started seeing snap rates in the 55 to 60% range in heavy... T- heavy 21 and 12 personnel sets to exploit too high this year, the chiefs are still trying to figure that out. And this is not, we haven't seen the same offensive production from the chiefs that we're used to because they're still working through what is the best combination of assets to exploit too high. We've seen sky Moore playing like sub full-time role. We've seen Kadarius Tony in that, exclusively short area schemed usage role. Now we've seen Justin Ross and Justin Watson sharing that Z type downfield safety manipulator role with Marquez Valdez Scantling. So at some point that offense is going to figure things out. They're going to figure out how they want to exploit too high, but that is this dance that we're seeing um, in the NFL this year. And right now, so far over the last three seasons, the defensive side of that discussion is kind of winning this battle. And so when we're hunting for upside in that discussion, with that discussion in mind, when we're hunting for upside in DFS, we really, really need to be paying attention to these teams that are actively doing things to exploit the current tendencies from defenses around the league. So that was a long discussion in kind of what we're seeing in today's NFL game and what that means to us as we move forward 
when we're trying to find DFS upside. So when we look at this slate, although it looks kind of gross on paper, we still have offenses that are doing these things to exploit current defensive tendencies. So I'll highlight a few of those defenses that are actively looking to do stuff to exploit too high. And we still have a fair number of teams on the slate that are showing us those tendencies. You'll notice I didn't highlight Cincinnati. This is a really weird one. If you go back two years ago, when Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow were coming out and saying like, yeah, we're kind of struggling to find our way because teams are just showing us a lot of too high. And then you get into the discussion that we just had. Look at what the Chiefs did. They instituted these weird short area schemed usage role. They instituted this downfield type Z type wide receiver to manipulate safeties. The Bengals, until week three of the 2023 season, were not doing anything to exploit too high. Then week three comes around and you see Jamar Chase see a career high slot snap rate. You see Jamar Chase in motion at a career high rate. He saw six targets from the slot in week three. Then we fast forward to week four and all those exploitative tendencies went out the window. And then you look at week five and those were back. They hammered the short area of the field through schemed usage to Jamar Chase against Jonathan Gannon's Cardinals. And then once those safeties were cheating down to stop the short area work, they were able to hit Jamar Chase on that deep touchdown. So all of that kind of comes into what Zach Taylor offense are we going to see against Seattle? So we'll go ahead and highlight them. But the big picture there is until further notice, consider the Bengals this wide range of outcome team because of the fact that they have been so two-faced in how they are looking to game plan and exploit too high. Also important in that discussion is their opponent in the Seattle Seahawks running heavy rates of cover two, cover three, and sometimes some cover four, but we know they're going to be in man coverage. We know they're not going to blitz a whole lot. So that matchup is very similar to their matchup with Jonathan Gannon's Cardinals because it's now over to Zach Taylor, Joe Burrow, and this offense to actively look to exploit those tendencies. So they're kind of on the cusp for us when we're looking for uh, upside in an offense. Obviously, we have Seattle coming off of their bye. Um, and they, although they are more of a brute force offense, they're not necessarily looking to exploit offensive tendencies. They're just looking to do what they do and do it well. So they're one of these brute force offenses that we know they're going to try and run the ball down your throat. And we know they're looking to leverage play action off of that rushing upside to attack the intermediate to deep areas of the field with their two primary wide receivers. They play a lot of 21 per or sorry, a lot of 12 personnel with multiple tight ends on the field. Uh, and we've seen how that has influenced rookie uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba's role in this offense, subpar snap rates uh, and subpar involvement in the offense. And that is because this offense is still utilizing those brute force tactics uh, that are based on the run game. And because of that, 
they are utilizing a lot of 12 personnel to get effectively six offensive linemen on the field. So that was a lot of discussion of like generalized team tendencies, what they are doing, how they're looking to approach things. Uh, with this Minnesota and Chicago game, it's got a high total and a relatively low spread down there uh, under three points, which is weird. We should we would not have thought the Vikings would be just two and a half point favorites uh, against the Chicago Bears coming into the season. But here we are. Chicago has continued their path and their their goal of transitioning Justin Fields this year into a pocket passer plus quarterback. Very different from last year where they were actively scheming to utilize and harness what he is good at, which very clearly was being his elite mobility and his athleticism. This year, though, they're trying. Uh, Luke Getze is trying to turn Justin Fields into this pocket passer plus the threat of mobility instead of the under, other way around. While that has taken some time, we've got a little flash in the pan here that we might have a spark going on here uh, with Justin Fields and Chicago. The other side of that discussion is, yes, Justin Fields has thrown eight touchdowns over the last two weeks. But further, thinking about what that means for their offense, their offense is highly, highly concentrated amongst DJ Moore and Cole Komet through the air. You look at Cole Komet's route participation rate and his involvement in the offense, and all of his underlying metrics are like top six in the league amongst tight ends. So I have been on Cole Komet over the last two games as this guy that has not performed to that point in the season, but all the underlying metrics were kind of saying it was a ticking time bomb. And we've seen scored two touchdowns two weeks ago, scored a touchdown last week. And that's going to continue. I think when the when the when the Bears find offensive success this year, you're going to see heavy concentration amongst Justin Fields, DJ Moore, and Cole Komet. And that's very good for us as we're looking to pull in upside um, in DFS because concentrated offenses obviously mean a narrow distribution of targets uh, and the upside that comes with volume from that. So until further notice, Justin Fields doubles with DJ Moore and Cole Komet or pick your poison between those two are fully and firmly on the table. Very similar to Miami where we expect the offense to find success. And furthermore, it's also a very concentrated offense. Tight ends are not utilized heavily. It's basically just Tyreek Hill, um, Tua Tonga Bailoa, Jalen Waddle, and the backfield. The backfield is also an interesting discussion this week, too, because now we are not allowed to have nice things here in fantasy land. Devon A. Chan is dealing with a knee injury and is likely to miss multiple weeks, was the report that came out this morning. So, uh, also last uh, yesterday, so Monday, somewhat quietly, uh, Jeff Wilson was activated from injured reserve. So he will be back. This, this backfield is likely to be a tandem between Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson, similar to what we saw last season. So that was a lot of macro discussion on this slate. And last week, I famously <laughs> transitioned to heavier 
uh, emphasis on MME, so mass multi-entry. How did I do that? I did that by making these stands, making these uh, leveraged bets, and utilizing an optimizer to help me build my rosters. And with that, here is the Podfather to discuss the DFS Dominator. DFS getting harder every year, but we're here to make it easier with the DFS Dominator because I know a lot of optimizers keep coming out. Oh, our optimizer. What about this optimizer? But that optimizer. Well, we have a cash game optimizer that leverages the projections from Dario, Billy, the award-winning projections at playerprofiler.com and builds the best lineups for cash games that have both upside and stability because that's what you want. It's a couple clicks, boom, boom, boom. You get the best possible lineup for your cash games. But for tournaments, traditional optimizers don't work. That's why we have a lineup genius, which takes you through the process of building lineups the way they should be built. Which quarterbacks do you want to be overweight on? Then building stacks, then setting runbacks, then optimizing and generating up to 150 lineups that you can easily import into DraftKings, into FanDuel. That's the DFS Dominator. It's only $45. A year, not not a week, a, a year, a year. Just go to Player Profiler, click on the DFS Dominator from the menu, and you won't be sorry. And we are back. So Podfather brings up an interesting point, and it's probably a little bit, uh, it probably ruffles some feathers. And in that bit, in that spot, in that ad, he says that, Traditional optimizers don't work for GPP play. What does he mean by that? Because that probably makes you think. Optimizers are built off of median projections, which is very cash game centric. We obviously have a median projection, which is the midpoint in an array or an assortment of data or potential outcomes. You picture that like a bell curve with the low end range on the left side, the median, which is typically a lot of the a lot of the data points in that array are situated about. So you see this peak, you see peak up here about the median projection. And then on the right hand side are your outlier ceiling performances. Why are optimizers or how can he say that optimizers are not built for tournament play is because they're built utilizing median projections and median projections are far less important to us in tournament rosters. So the ability to take median projections and harness it into something that is important to us, obviously we know that there are standard DFS practices for GPP play like correlation, like stacking, uh, all these things that we know are going to boost our potential. Being able to control those is very, very important in GPP play. And so when you look at ha my habit patterns from last week, coming from a single entry three max player and transitioning to MME, I had to fight with the optimizers to have them get me to a point where I could have some more say in how those rosters are being built. So there's optimizers that utilize rules and what 
Podfather was just showing us with the DFS Dominator opto is that it walks you through how to set up those rules to get those the optimizer to build rosters uh, as you want them to be built for GPP play. So that is extremely important. If you're out there utilizing an optimizer, it's very important, obviously, to get it to build rosters that actually have a chance to win a tournament and they're not being built off of median projections. All right. So looking at this slate, right off the bat, we've talked about the lead into kind of the state of the, the, the league right now in 2023 and where we can be going to look for upside. I also didn't highlight the 49ers for a very specific reason. The 49ers have scored 30 or more points in nine of 11 Brock Purdy starts dating back to last year. And that is talk about upside. That is extremely important to us. But in this Niners-Browns game, we also have two of the top three performing defenses as of right now, where we sit right now. We saw what the 49ers did to uh, a thought-to-be top-end offense in Dallas. Uh, they just might have some holes that they need to fail still. Uh, so they got exposed a little bit. But we see also what the 49ers are able to do in that primetime game uh, against defenses that are not ready for all the unique looks that they are doing. So the 49ers always carry upside. The 49ers are also in a matchup with the Jim Schwartz defense that we talked about earlier that is running heavy rates of man coverage and is coming after the quarterback in the backfield at a heavy rate. Typically, historically, uh, over the past three seasons in San Francisco, when they see a team that is blitzing at heavy rates, they are keeping George Kittle, who is the best, most well-rounded tight end in the game today because he does everything that a tight end is asked to do at an elite level. Yes, Travis Kelsey is the best pass-catching tight end in today's game, but he is not the best, most well-rounded tight end. That is George Kittle. So typically, against teams that are blitzing, trying to get after the quarterback, they're going to utilize George Kittle on the line of scrimmage, in line, and they're going to utilize him as a sixth offensive lineman. So that introduces an interesting point. Now, you have Brandon Ayuk, you have Debo Samuel, you have Christian McCaffrey, who are the players that we should expect to be the most involved against man coverage against the Cleveland Browns and Jim Schwartz's defense. There is upside there. So all three of those guys uh, should be considered, even with this game carrying a low total, even with this matchup being against two of the top three performing defenses right now. Um, so obviously guys like uh, Christian McCaffrey is fully on the table. Um, Brandon Ayuk fully on the table and Debo Samuel fully on the table. Debo's very interesting in the spot as well. I think he's going to be going overlooked on this slate, but Debo is one of the best man beaters that this def or this offense has. Brandon Ayuk, very, very good at exploiting zone coverages, and we saw it last week. Also, we also saw last week another opponent that utilized heavy rates of man coverage, and we saw what George Kittle did against that. But in this spot, 
the Dallas Cowboys are not blitzing a whole ton. They are a defense that is looking to play man coverage, but they're looking to generate organic pressure. So a little bit different than the Cleveland Browns who are going to be bringing that pressure. So that to me, we might think, oh, the Cowboys play a lot of man coverage. The Browns play a lot of man coverage. George Kittle just went off against man coverage. A little bit more nuanced discussion uh, heading into this week. So all that considered, the the three primary of the four primary, um, and that's the other good thing about San Francisco, is we know that they have a high hit rate in scoring points, and we know that their offense is extremely concentrated about Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, and George Kittle. So if we can remove one of those pieces as a likely contributor on a week like this, now we're just left with three, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, and Debo Samuel, and an offense that is expected to score points. So they're always in play. And now we're into these offenses that are like looking to exploit, um, actively exploit and generate upside for us. As we talked about earlier, you have Shane Steichen, you have the Gary Kubiak tree uh, head coaches um, or play callers. Um, and this Minnesota Chicago game kind of on the cusp. They're not really doing a lot. We also have Justin Jefferson who is, uh, just hit the IR uh, overnight. So there's a lot. Let's you know what. Let's talk about Mr. Jordan Addison, shall we? Jordan Addison. I have been on record saying that he was the most pro ready wide receiver to come out of this year's draft class. Yes, more pro ready than JSN because JSN, while he is very capable, he was JSN was the best route runner to come out of the this year's draft class, but he was not the most well-rounded and pro-ready wide receiver to come out. And the Seattle Seahawks, we just got done talking about them. They are a brute force offense and they are going to run things their way. And, but they're going to be very good at it, which still brings them some, some offensive success. JSN, not the best blocker, which is important to this offense. You look at DK Metcalf. It took him a little bit to develop those tendencies in his game. That's all that's happening with JSN. He's going to be fine long-term. This is still an elite route runner, uh, but he's got to work on the other stuff, which back to Jordan Addison allows me to say that he was the most pro ready out of this draft class with Justin Jefferson off the field. Well, let's talk about the Minnesota Vikings tendencies real quick. The Vikings are a team that likes to utilize heavy rates of 12 personnel with multiple tight ends on the field if they are allowed to. The problem is they haven't been allowed to a lot this year. But if you look at Jordan Addison's snap rate and route participation rate when they are trailing versus when we have neutral to positive game environments for Minnesota, they are stark. The differences are stark. Jordan Addison has an 86% route participation rate when the Vikings are playing from behind this season. And that is down to below 65% when they are able to control the game environment. Now, remove Justin Jefferson from that equation. AJ Osborne is just a guy. He is just a body. He's very good at blocking, which has kept him on the field over Jordan Addison in this offense because he does the little things right. He does the nitty gritty stuff right. But 
he is not <laughs> he is not an elite wide receiver. He is not an elite, we'll say he is not an elite pass catcher in the NFL. So now his role is highly unlikely to change with Justin Jefferson out, but enter Jordan Addison. And the other part of that discussion is TJ Hawkinson's role in this offense is highly unlikely to grow. He already has a high route participation rate. He's already playing elite snap rate, but his ADOT in this offense, he's playing primarily the short areas of the field. He does not bring that same per touch upside that he did when he was in Detroit. They're not using him that way. So go yell at Kevin O'Connell about if, if you drafted TJ Hawkinson, because he's going to continue to carry a rather low floor and he's going to be highly reliant on touchdowns in this current role. And that role is highly unlikely to change with Justin Jefferson out. So what does that leave us? That leaves us with Jordan Addison as the player who is likeliest to see his role in this offense grow the most. And when you look at these game logs, it's like, how did he see only one target against Carolina? Because the Minnesota Vikings were able to control that game environment and his snap rate was suboptimal. You look at these games where they're playing catch up. That is where Jordan Addison has seen his route participation rate grow. Now remove Justin Jefferson. And I think we're going to see Jordan Addison in a full-time role as one of the most pro ready young wide receivers in the league. So Jordan Addison against this Chicago bears offense is highly intriguing because he is likely to be the piece that this offense is built around. So he is very interesting on this slate. I think you can play him as a one-off from this game. I think you can mix him in with the upside of Chicago Bears. Something like a Justin Fields, DJ Moore, Cole Komet, Jordan Addison game stack is fully on the table in this week because we're looking for upside. And upside is going to be hard to come by. That entire discussion of the state of the league and the offenses and the defenses and this, this dance that is going on in the league uh, was built to identify teams that bring us upside. And the upside from the Minnesota-Chicago game is not from that. <laughs> These teams are not doing that, but their defenses are also atrocious. So that gives us that upside. So that's kind of the discussion of the state of the slate. What is going on with the league? How we can be looking to identify upside? We obviously didn't talk about Houston. Houston's an interesting case because Tank Dell left with a concussion last week. Another one of my rules that I fed into the optimizer last week was at least one of Tank Dell or Nico Collins on every roster. And why did I do that? I did that because Bobby Slowick is legit. He's hails from the Kyle Shanahan coaching tree. He is legit doing things with these layered route concepts, these things looking to exploit too high looks. And if you look at his quarterback, obviously uh, a rookie here, but CJ Stroud is on pace for just about 300 passing yards per game. Fell short of that against Atlanta. Atlanta playing heavy rates of man coverage. But he was cooking until Tank Dell left with a concussion. So how does that play into what to expect moving forward? Well, Tank Dell's probably going to miss this contest. And now we're left with Nico Collins as the focal point of this passing offense. And we've seen what Nico Collins can do this year in this expanded role. And he is, damn it, he is the alpha in this offense. And he needs to be, respect needs to be put on this man's name because he has made strides in his game. 
He is fifth in the league in yards per route run versus man coverage, and he is exploiting zone tendencies. And with Bobby Slowick at the helm of this offense, this offense carries upside for the rest of the season. They have not been able to run the football because of the injuries on the offensive line, and now they get a matchup with an opponent that is built to take away the run and then settle into zone coverages and man coverages behind it. So Nico Collins at only 5.6, we could see another 30-burger put up from him in this spot as the focal point of this offense. And Nico Collins is also not the archetype of wide receiver that we typically see the Saints utilize uh, island coverage on. So that's very interesting. But it doesn't matter, honestly. If they look to put Marshawn Lattimore, who is a big body uh, cornerback, who is very effective at taking away more X-type wide receivers that are body position wide receivers. So your DeAndre Hopkins, your Mike Evans, um, these guys who are running a very constricted route tree. Very effective at taking that away. But Nico Collins is not that. So Nico Collins is a guy that I have circled uh, in pen, in Sharpie maybe even, uh, early in the week in this spot as a guy who can bring significant upside to the table. Um, Other than that, we talked about the spots. You see them highlighted on the screen. The Eagles always carry upside in a difficult matchup with the Jets. The Rams are going to carry that Jekyll and Hyde upside against Arizona. Can they figure out how to exploit this unique look that they haven't seen before? Well, some teams are, some teams aren't. And that's all kind of um, due to Jonathan Gannon's defense. The Lions and the, the, uh, the Buccaneers here, Two teams that are very well rounded at this point in the season. And this was one of the games that the NFL, this is the first game that the NFL has flexed. So this is going to be an interesting matchup. Two solid defenses. The Lions defense is a top five unit in the league. They are. They're just there. (laughs) They're just there. So we know Tampa Bay, the tendencies there. Uh, They're going to hammer down on the run. They're going to force you to pass. So there could be some upside here. Uh, New England, Las Vegas, no thank you, ma'am. I will continue. Uh, Obviously, the Miami Dolphins, there's some upside there. Indianapolis carries upside. We know that that via the tendencies uh, with Gardner Minshew at quarterback, uh, he is targeting uh, Michael Pittman, 30% plus uh, of his dropbacks, and he is targeting Joshua Downs heavily as well. So both of those guys bring upside in the spot as well. We talked about the Niners. We talked about Seattle and Cincinnati, two teams that are kind of looking to um, brute force their way to offensive success uh, with that asterisk over Zach Taylor's name. We don't really know how he's going to approach a game plan, but he was very excited. You looked at his postgame presser last weekend. Um, He was very excited about what he was able to accomplish uh, against the Cardinals. So maybe that upside continues. Uh, And then we're left with Minnesota and Chicago. So that's our first look at the slate ahead for week six. That was hopefully a discussion on how to identify upside moving forward. I am Hilo. You know where to find me. And until next time, we'll see you at the top of the leaderboards, player profiler posse. I'm out. Hey, I want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. It's important to me that all of our media be free. This is only possible because of you allowing a true independent sports media enterprise to thrive unlike any other in the business. So please subscribe to the All In Package to continue to make all this possible to ensure that all of our stats, information, data, content 
is available to you, especially you, the people that get the site and get the show.